0: So 90% of this work is boots on the ground. A lot of it's manual labor. There's several control methods we use with invasive plants and herbicides one of those, but hand pulling and manual removal, like just literally pulling the plant out of the ground is very effective for things like Japanese barberry, garlic mustard. And so we need people to come out and work with us. And so you can do that through the Weed Warrior program or Adopt-A-Spot and look into the training for Weed wars. They do it twice a year. And I really think that community effort is gonna be critical to um, implementing a successful program here in Columbia.
1: Hello, and welcome to Green Dragon, a monthly show where we talk about green initiatives in Maryland, Howard County, and Howard Community College, plus ideas and ways for you to be more sustainable at home. I'm Bob Marietta. HCC's Environmental Health and Safety Supervisor. And I thank you for watching today. My guest today is Eric Walker, Conservation Landscape Specialist for the Columbia Association. So, Eric, what was it that first got you interested in conservation and the environment?
0: Well, Bob, I grew up to, next to White Clay Creek State Park in Newark, Delaware, where I got to run around as a kid and had a uh, that state park to play in. And both my parents are from upstate New York in the Catskills. So we were always visiting there. When I got to college, I had some really great courses. And one of the books I read in college really set me off on this path. It was The Green Revolution by Kirkpatrick Sales. And that's a book about the history of the environmental movement from like the 60s to the 90s. And so I started reading about, you know, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, the Cuyahoga River Fire had an environmental law course on X Exxon Valdez as a case study and, you know, just realized that, you know, our planet has a pretty serious problem and there's things that people can do to make a difference. And that's kind of how it started. I moved out west and kind of went from there.
1: Were there any particular educational programs that you took in order to be considered a
0: conservation landscape specialist? I graduated from University of Delaware in 2005 with a bachelor of science in natural resource management. Then immediately after college, I did an internship with the Student Conservation Association, which paired me with the National Park Service. And that was, I mean, I would definitely consider the internship an educational program, but yeah, basically a Bachelor of Science. So is that a path you'd recommend for young people? Well, yeah, there's kind of two paths you can take in the resource management field or at least conservation side of it. A lot of people I know and my colleagues got master's degrees, which is really useful in our modern conservation efforts, we need more data and we need more evidence of, of what the, some of these harms we're, we're going to be talking about. So, yeah, masters is a great path if you're interested in research and all that, but there is a lot of field work available in the United States, tons of actual conservation field work, wildland, firefighting, trail crews, fishery jobs. Lots of them are out west. But so, if you're the kind of person that doesn't necessarily want to do research and want to work out in the field, I would definitely suggest right after college or you know, you, you don't even actually need to go to college to do a lot of these more manual labor jobs related to conservation. But I would suggest that is you know, getting out in the field and, and seeing if you like the field work. So where else
1: have you been working? What were you doing before you came to Columbia?
0: So right after I graduated from Delaware, I wanted to kind of see the rest of the US and Like I said, I got my internship with the Student Conservation Association, and that was in uh, Carlsbad Caverns, but that was on the Southern Shortgrass Prairie Chihuahuan Desert Exotic Plant Management Team, total mouthful. But that was with the National Park Service, and we were cutting down salt cedar and Russian olive trees in national parks in New Mexico. In Texas. And then I moved to, so after the SCA internship, that was for like nine months, they basically got me a job with the national park service where I worked at the Lake Mead EPMT that stands for exotic plant management team, basically strike forces that go off on eight day hitches and work eight days on and six days off. And that was almost all salt cedar work in Nevada, Arizona, and Utah. Then I went to the California EPMT for the park service. And then to the North coast, Cascade Network EPMT for the Park Service. (laughs) And then I worked out on the eastern side of Washington State as a crew leader for that same program at Lake Roosevelt. And then we uh, moved to western Washington. I got a job with the King County Noxious Weed Control Program as an inspector, and that was enforcing their county noxious weed control laws. But mostly working with landowners to solve noxious weed problems. Um, and then recently we were in Montana and I was working for a cattle ranch and for the park service there doing some invasive plant surveying and monitoring. That, was, that was most recently we moved to Columbia for my wife's job. She, she got a job in Laurel that we kind of had to take. And then most of my family is from Delaware. And so it's nice to be back around the relatives. Wow, what what a
1: lot of experiences. I was disappointed to hear you mention Russian olive being all over the West as well. Uh, this is one of our curses here. We
0: have our own, so, yes, autumn olive. Yeah, and a lot of that work, Bob, one thing to touch on is that you have to be willing to do seasonal work. So it took me several years of doing seasonal work and moving back and forth between regions. They also sent me down to... Florida and to the Everglades and Big Cypress for nine months. And it, so there's a lot of seasonal work moving around. But if you kind of do that and, you know, work within that system with the federal government and seasonal work, uh, eventually, you know, it, it, it'll turn into full-time employment. There, there's just a lot of work, especially with invasive plants out there. So, you know, you mentioned
1: the one uh, history of the environmental movement book, but what are the names of individuals and organizations whose works have served to guide you?
0: Yeah, so definitely a Student Conservation Association, they're a great organization. They were started in New Hampshire by a woman who found that we needed conservation work and young people need job training. And it was a perfect match and it's just a very large national program. So they really guided me. I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do when I graduated, but I knew I wanted to do something with plant science and that was what I was focused on in college, so SCA got me you know, a foot in the door with the park service. And then within the park service, I had a crew leader there named Todd Neal and he was really my mentor. He kind of showed me a lot about invasive plant control over my years there. And then the King County Noxious Weed Control Program is well organized and funded program. They have a large education outreach component. And those organizations like really helped me learn a lot. And I'm still continuing to learn a lot here at Columbia Association.
1: Those are some great leads we can follow up on. Now, I know you focus on replacing invasive plant species with native ones, but how do you define native species compared to naturalized species?
0: Ah, so that's, sort of simple but it's also gets really complex so the naturalized just means that it's an exotic species not from here but it's able to maintain a population by reproducing an invasive plant species comes here and not only sustains its population it displaces other organisms and grows to a rate that's considered invasive so naturalized they're here they're not causing major issues generally and here in columbia we have some really crazy examples that show up in the woods like i've been out surveying and i'll come across things like you know narcissists the daffodils just out in the middle of nowhere liriope out in the woods i found really big patch of lenten rose Downy king's contrivance we have tons of garden escapees you know the burning bush all that stuff so those are sort of naturalized ones not necessarily the burning bush but these ornamental plants that are, they're out there, but they're not growing to population levels that are really concerning. Then we have these highly invasive plants that you can kind of look at them and tell that they're invasive. You know, the bush honeysuckle, stilt grass, wavy leaf, basket grass, English ivy, garlic mustard, that kind of thing. So then there's one little interesting thing about naturalization that's happening. That's there's some emerging research and a lot of new studies on it. And that's hybridization between native species and non-native, particularly invasive species. For example, they're starting to look at these hybrid viburnums. There's a Japanese viburnum, the snow, snowballs, Japanese snowball viburnum. And then there's this native, we have arrowwood, Southern arrowwood and blackhaw viburnum. And there's some hybridization possibly going on. And it's really hard to start telling these species apart. Asian bittersweet is another great example. There's an American bittersweet. And they think that the Asian bittersweet probably has a lot to do with this massive drop-off in the American bittersweet populations. I'm starting to look at Japanese cherries out in the field and trying to ID those versus some of our native cherries. But I think there's hybridization going on with a lot of these. And that's going to get really complicated trying to distinguish between the native and the non-native so that that gene flow issue is certainly going to be an emerging thing for people to look at and then that gets into the whole there's a a really interesting debate right now going on about the value of native plants versus non-native plants and the non-native invasive plants because there are organisms that use these non-native plants for nectar that kind of thing food but their numbers are vastly inferior to the native plants so we're on many many magnitudes bush honeysuckle is a really great example the bush honeysuckle typically supports like 20 to 40 organisms that use it here whereas the american honeysuckle would probably support several hundred where it gets complicated is that they've looked at there's a study that looked at honeysuckle and they found out that invertebrate biomass was actually larger underneath these honeysuckle thickets the non-native invasive honeysuckle thickets however the available forage for leaf cutter insects like caterpillars was was actually lower than with the native southern arrowwood viburnum so there's quantifiable metrics here that people are measuring to try to Answer that question, Bob, and it gets really complicated. And that's one of the things we need to know in this field is what the value of these invasive plants are versus the non-native plants. And essentially any plant that we can back off on managing because it provides a greater benefit than another, we, we want to not have to work on because there's so many other things that are causing damage. And that's definitely something that we definitely need more studying done on.
1: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, and you've, you've obviously got a career ahead of you taking care of this stuff. We're glad to have you, and glad you're looking at this. You know, there's a lot to learn still. So we know what changes in our climate are adding, we know that changes in our climate are adding stress to plant life. What differences can it make to homeowners, whether they
0: grow native species or invasives or even exotics? So there's another really interesting metric that people use to quantify value of native plants, and that's caterpillars. Dr. Talamy out of University of Delaware wrote Nature's Best Hope. And he that whole book is about this issue of, you know, of what homeowners can do. And um, Homegrown National Park is just a great program. Definitely go check that out. His book, Nature's Best Hope, is really good. You know, he's got the idea is that. We have tons of private land that can be restored or reforested and provide this critical habitat for, particularly for insects, which feed songbirds, and that there's a lot that homeowners can do. And if you listen to his lectures, he's right. If you put in a native plant, I just put in some swamp milkweed at my house and I have a swamp milkweed beetle on there. And it's only the swamp milkweed has only been there for half a growing season. They do show up, they're there, and we know that their value is much, much greater than these non-natives. Look at uh, the National Wildlife Federation made a website with Dr. Talamy that lists keystone plant species in this region and the number of invertebrates that they'll support. And so choosing from those are just are are great choices for the homeowner. Great. So
1: what are you and CA doing to try to communicate with homeowners about what they can do to help the environment?
0: So outreach and education is super important because these native plants, if we put them there, they'll do the work themselves. So if we can tell people what not to plant and what to plant, that, that goes a long way. So outreach and education is great and the prevention they found out that, you know, that's a one-to-one, $1 spent is a dollar saved or $100 saved in the future. And so preventing these invasives from coming into natural areas from homeowners is, is a critical step. And so we're gonna be working on our outreach and education material. And then also the very first thing we can do is control NNI's on open space. And so we have over five large restoration sites and uh, about a dozen other smaller sites where we're controlling invasives. And so we're building our education and outreach up and we're gonna be able to recommend specific best management practices to landowners. We're eventually gonna have a landing page on our website with all that information.
1: That'll help get people the information quicker. Now I know you recently joined John McCoy, CA's watershed manager in the classroom session of our latest Weed Warrior class, which we hold twice a year. Now, how can you use
0: these trained individuals to help you meet your goals? So we definitely need boots on the ground. And distinguishing between native and non-native plants is sometimes a little difficult. So trained individuals that know these non-natives is super beneficial. We have the Weed Warrior Program and the Adopt-A-Slot Program. Uh, All that info is on our website. One thing we just looked at back in January of this year of 2023, we took six weeks And well, we developed this survey form that we called Vine Mapper, and we provided it to 12 volunteers who came from our Weed Warrior program or other local community groups. And we had them go out and map trees imperiled by vines. So trees that are infested with non-native invasive vines. And we wanted them to look at the density of the infestation, where they occurred, and how many trees were infested by these vines. And so we made this survey form that was on a mobile app. We sent them out to map in open space here in Columbia for six weeks, and they were able to record almost 1,800 individual trees. So there was like Almost 200 data entries, individual data entries, and you know they measured anywhere from you know five to 100 trees, or you know probably not that many, but less in one patch. And so we got all this data; it was awesome. We had suggestions on how to improve the app, and we are creating a new version of the app. But in this process, we actually learned something really valuable, and particularly about English ivy, that you can control English ivy at the base of the tree by cutting it or even cutting it and putting herbicide on the cut stump to prevent that from re-sprouting. But eventually what we need to do for permanent long-term control or eradication of an individual patch of English ivy is to be managing that ivy on the ground. And so in order to determine where these dense thickets of ground level ivy are, because the tree will just constantly be reinvaded. And so we need to manage the infestation from the outside and work in. And in order to determine where these high priority infestations are, we need to be able to have our mappers digitize on a polygon. So to be able to look at a screen and just draw on the polygon of where this English ivy exists on the forest floor and that product isn't really available for citizen scientists that we know of, and we're working with a couple of groups to develop that, but that that's essentially what we, what I would like to do. Um, This fine mapper program is probably going to, what we need to do is have a cascade into a larger citizen science mapping app where we can focus on these high priority invasives, not just English ivy on the forest floor, but also early detection, rapid response invasives as well. So it's it's kind of ballooning from this one vine mapping concept with you know the idea of freeing up these trees from vines to something probably a little bigger. Also, the really cool thing with that vine mapper thing is we sent a contractor out to those areas where they map those, and they cut the vines at the base of the tree. And you know we're seeing immediate results in those areas. But again, we need to be managing those on the forest floor.
1: So as the app develops and more people get to using it. How can programs like Adopt-A-Spot and Master Gardeners, Stream Waiters, the Village Cares groups, and the uh, environmental clubs at the various schools, how can they help you with the CA and help you manage the open space environments?
0: So 90% of this work is boots on the ground. A lot of it's manual labor. There's several control methods we use with invasive plants. And herbicide's one of those, but hand-pulling and manual removal, like just literally pulling the plant out of the ground is very effective for things like Japanese barberry, garlic mustard. And so we need people to come out and work with us. And so you can do that through the Weed Warrior program or adopt a spot and look into the training for Weed Warriors. They do it twice a year. And I really think that community effort is going to be critical to um, implementing a successful program here in Columbia.
1: You mentioned earlier the CA was developing a, a web page where people could get more information about these groups. Do you know when that's supposed to be
0: online? No, we're gonna we we'll have a section on our sustainability page, I imagine. But right now in the busy season, <laughs> I would okay. guess by this winter, yeah. It's okay. So, what would you say are the most challenging
1: invasive species you're confronting right now, and what urgency should all of us be feeling about those species?
0: So there's a couple here in Colombia that are causing widespread damage. There's more than a couple, but one of the ones that's the scariest uh, is Lester Celandine. So this little tiny green, it is a spring ephemeral. It comes up really early in the spring, and that's why it's so bad. So it comes up before the native spring ephemerals do, and before all the trees have leafed out, and it catches all that sunlight. And so this stuff germinates like in January, sometimes under the snow. So it's the first one up. So it takes all that space. And then the native spring ephemerals or even like shrubs and trees, they can't push up through that layer. Like you guys have probably, people have probably seen it walking around in the spring. It's that carpet of yellow flowers, little yellow flowers. And there's so many side impacts of that lesser celandine, particularly on our floodplains. It increases erosion because once it dies back, All that it leaves where it was, where that monoculture of celandine was, is just like a sandy spot, which is more prone to erosion and keeps adding sediment to the system. And the real tragedy is, you know, the loss of these beautiful spring ephemerals, trout lilies, Virginia bluebells, all these characteristic little wildflowers that occur in these woodlands, their populations are being absolutely Decimated by these invasives, and I can say for sure that lesser salandine is a main one of the main causes of this loss of our spring ephemerals. So, and there's a lot to that story. It's really interesting if, if you want to read about it. There's a lot of with pollinators and when they stop over to get nectar, and there's it gets really in depth with like generalist and specialist pollinators, and you know how these spring ephemerals provide critical nectar at certain times of year. So, there's just a lot to it. And I think that all of these non-native invasives are serious issues, but there are some that are are worse than others. And so that lesser salandine and then the ivy and the vines on trees, I mean, those are really direct, immediate impacts. And so... People are monitoring things like our urban tree canopy here in Howard County. That will give us a baseline to look at what are, uh, you know, the trends of our urban tra- tree canopy and making sure that's still intact. But you can see it everywhere in Columbia where you go um, trees that have either been pulled down or that are going to be pulled down soon from these vines. And so that's extremely urgent. And that's one of the ideas behind this vine mapper and tree saver is, You know, cutting the vines off the trees is great for immediate, you know, relief, but we need to definitely be managing them on the forest floor as well. So, yeah, tons of bad NNIs here, dozens, in fact. So, can you point out any tangible
1: evidence where your efforts are starting to produce the results you want to see?
0: Yeah. One of the things we do in invasive plant management is we measure success by infestation sizes. And so we can survey the population on on our restoration sites, we can survey the population, the native and invasive plants before we do the work and after. And so we look at things like infested area. So if I go up to a site and I look at an infested area of bush honeysuckle, say it's 5,000 square feet. Then we look at the cover class of that individual patch and say that that's the canopy is something like 10% then we have 500 gross infested square feet of bush honeysuckle there. And so we go out and we measure that every year, multiple times a year. We should see that 5,000 square feet start to shrink as we're sampling it over the years. So places like Wild Lake, we have a shoreline project going on on the North shore. We removed these multi-flora rose thickets that have been there for a long time. And there was goldenrod under there, horse chestnut other natives that were just laying in wait and they're, they're emerging again. So that was really cool to see. And of course you have to stay on top of that. So maintenance is a huge part of it, but there's places where we've removed multiflora rose, Canada thistle. And I've gone into old maintenance planting sites that they installed years ago where, you know, some of these old plantings are completely engulfed by these invasives and they're still holding on for dear life. So just bring them up and giving them that sunlight back does a lot. But yeah, there's a lot of native propagules still in the ground. And so one strategy that people really hope for is you just remove the invasives and the natives will come back. It almost never happens, but in some cases or most cases, there's something under there that's gonna come back. So yeah, we've seen successes like that. And then, you know, the vine mapper thing, being able to get those contractors out immediately after the vine mapping was was really, you know, it was indicative that a program like that can work where community members are out doing the sampling and then uh, workforce is coming in and doing the actual labor. So I thought that was really successful. And so, Places like English Ivy, you know, we found that hand removal, I've removed it at a site down in Faulkner Ridge and that worked really well. There's also herbicide methods that have worked for us as well too. So it's possible. And we just started this program basically this spring. And so the year to year sampling will tell us like how it's trending, but you know, the real success lies in the results years from now so you know we're talking three five ten years on a lot of these sites but we should see the numbers start to go down that's good congratulations
1: seeing you out there and i you can really notice a difference happening already and i really appreciate that when you're walking the paths it's pretty obvious yeah thanks
0: bob and one of the things we're trying to do at columbia association is build a machine that is well organized and that we can Basically build and then turn on to create a sustainable program that will last for years, you know, because a lot of these, a lot of habitat restoration programs kind of fizzle out because they don't do the maintenance or you know, programmatic organizational changes. And so one of the ways we want to build this machine is using technology. And so we have some really great tools at our disposal here in Columbia, at Columbia Association. We have ArcGIS. And so we're using field mapping capabilities, tablet-based mapping, and then we have a web-based database that we're putting all this information in. Data is like the key to all of this. And so for historic reasons, but also for planning, work planning and management priorities. So we're gonna leverage technology and that's really the only way to stay organized. But what, yeah, what we're trying to do is really build this program up over time. And so that's one of my goals here most of the work's just going to be actual physical work. So we're, we're building up the ways we can do that right now. That's great.
1: Well, we've reached the end of our show. Thank you, Eric. And uh, can you say a little bit about how people can get in touch with you? And Because I know a lot of people will want to get involved.
0: Yeah, definitely reach out anytime. Eric.Walker at ColumbiaAssociation.org. It's E-R-I-C dot walker at org Shoot me an email, Uh, love to talk about invasives and can provide control recommendations or any other info you you want about our program.
1: Thank you everyone for listening in today. I'll be back next month with another guest and another sustainable topic. In the meantime, if you have ideas or comments, you can connect with me at rmarietta at howardcc.edu. You can listen to this and all of our other episodes at greendragonhcc.podbeam.com. And you can also catch us on HCC TV and Howard Community College's YouTube page. Thank you all for joining us today.
0: Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.